Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Mary Waring. Mary is the founder of Wealth for Women, an award-winning financial advisory firm working with midlife women to help them leap into the next stage of their life, whether that be moving on from divorce, reducing working hours to enjoy more free time, or starting a new business. She uses her coaching skills to help clients determine what they want the next stage of their life to look like and her financial planning skills to determine whether they have sufficient assets to fund the desired lifestyle. Her aim is to help you find true abundance, which is so much more than just money. As Coco Chanel said, there are people who have money and people who are rich. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about the common mistakes women make when it comes to their money knowing the difference between your income and your net worth, how to think about your money if you're getting married, and what women need to watch out for if getting divorced. We talk about financial advisors, how they can help, and how to find the right financial advisor for you. We talk about how women are managing and investing their money. And to finish up, Mary shares her advice for women who want to engage much more around their money and investing. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Mary, welcome to the Purse Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you, Jana. It's lovely to be here. And I was saying just uh, just before that I came across your book on Amazon, I think it was back in 2017. It was a wonderful book. It opened my eyes. It was one of a handful of books only that I could find on Amazon, but it really had a huge impact on me. So I'm so excited that you could join me today. Thank you for saying that. That's really lovely to hear because, of course, you never understand what impact it's had on anyone. And it's nice that there's reviews that said, oh, I like it. But actually to hear that is wonderful. So thank you very much. Now, before we get into it, I would love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, Mary, and specifically your journey to where you are today. And what is it that interests you about supporting women in managing their money and wealth? Well, my background is I'm a chartered accountant. So I worked as a finance director up until 2005, and I was employed. And I really hadn't enjoyed employed life at all. I felt I worked for bosses that I didn't like their ethos and their values. And I actually just decided, well, I can't keep moving from one boss I don't like to another boss I don't like. So I'm just going to set up and be my own boss. And initially, I went the mortgage route, because even as a chartered accountant, the amount of exams you have to do as a financial advisor is just enormous. So I became a mortgage advisor first, because there were less exams, and therefore I got started a lot quicker. But I think within about two or three years, I decided, actually, I want to do financial advice because I liked the much more rounded approach of looking after everybody's finance. And I was well aware that very few financial advisors are female. 
at that stage, I think it was about 9% of advisors were female. So I thought, well, if you're female and for whatever reason you, you'd prefer to have a female advisor, well, there aren't many of us around. So why don't I particularly have a service for females? And of course, women do not need different advice to men, but I think they often need a different approach because my service is particularly for women who are feeling rather vulnerable around finance. It could be that they're going through divorce and their husband looked after the money. It could be that they're very busy at work and they're spending all their time at work and they're just not looking after their money and they don't know where to start. So that's why I decided I'm particularly going to target women who are feeling uncomfortable and want looking after. And I was brought up in a household where my father earned the money and his view was it was his money. He determined what it was spent on. My mother was in a very unhappy marriage, but she couldn't leave. She had no money in her own right. So I learned at a very early age, I'm going to say sort of the power of money. You know, money shouldn't give you power, but a lot of people use it that way. And I did realize that without a doubt, having money and understanding money gives you options. Now, it doesn't necessarily make you happy, but it gives you more options than might have been available if you didn't have the money. So from a very early age, I had decided I'm not going to be in the same position that my mother's in. She's got no money. She's got no independence. She's got no control over her life at all. So I decided from an early age, that's not going to be me. I'm going to make sure that I earn money and I understand it. And so quite nice then when I come to this stage that it feels a little bit like giving back, you know, finding other women who are in maybe a similar situation to my mom in the sense that they feel lost, lacking control, you know, to be able to help them. That's a wonderful story and such an important one, Mary. As a financial advisor, I'm curious, how do you help women? What is it that you do exactly? And this is for the benefit of listeners who may have not worked with a financial advisor before. So what does your work involve? And then I'm also interested to know, what are some of the common mistakes that you see women make around their money? If we start with the mistake first, biggest mistake I see and I see quite often is women just not dealing with it. It's because of lack of knowing what to do that actually often they stick their head in the sand. There's a lot of fear around money. So the biggest mistake is women not dealing with it feeling this fearful thing there and they decide that if they close their eyes and forget about it it's better and so what I do is I help women gain confidence around money so I'm not going to say you know typical advisor might say oh I help them invest blah 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 which you know is important my view is I give women confidence clarity peace of mind So it's to help them understand the money that they've got and understand what they need to do for the future to help them have the lifestyle that they want. Because money on its own, to me, is irrelevant. 
money buys you a lifestyle it buys you experiences the amount of money you need is determined by the lifestyle that you want so it's helping women understand well if this is the lifestyle that you're looking for this is the pot of money you need or if they've already finished working it's saying well this is the pot of money you've got this is the lifestyle you now can afford so my service i'd say is around understanding your finances rather than helping you invest helping you invest is part of it but the understanding bit comes first and I want to just underline very briefly the difference between earning income and your net worth. Why is understanding the difference so important? The the reason I raise that is because we know in media mostly, although things are changing, but I think we're still seeing the narrative, the focus being around earning money. There's less discussion when it comes to women about you know, making sure you're growing your net worth and what that actually means. So why should we focus on growing our net worth versus growing just our income? Your income, naturally, is your income. But actually, what's relevant is how much of that money you're spending. So if you looked at a few examples, you could have, for example, female earning £250,000 a year, but she's spending 250,000 or she might be spending more she could have credit card debt and then let's think about another lady she's earning 50,000 but out of that 50,000 she's using her ISA allowance each year and so she's spending 30. When you look at those two examples who is the one who's got more financial security there it's the lady earning 50,000 because she's saving If something happened whereby she lost her job or she's running her own business and she was ill, she lost her income, she's got a savings pot to fall back on and she's got less spending that she needs to fund. The lady who is spending everything she's earning has got nothing to fall back on. So often I say to people when they start thinking that they need to earn more money, in order to be able to sort their financial future, it's not necessarily earning more money, it's spending less of what you're earning. And your net worth is the sum of everything you own, less what you owe. So that would be, you know, you take off your mortgage and mortgages, credit card, etc. Your net worth is effectively the pot of money whereby if you sold everything today and paid off your debts, that's what you're left with. And of course, that is much more important for your financial future than what you're earning. Your earnings going up are only going to benefit you if your savings increase. If your earnings go up, but you actually just keep spending everything you're earning, it doesn't matter what you're earning because you're not saving anything to look after your future. Income on its own is not relevant at all. It's actually what you're spending that's relevant and therefore whatever it is that's left that you're able to save. Clients will often say to me, they come to me and say, you know, how much do I need to save? I want to stop work when I'm 65, how much do I need in the pot? 
And that is going to vary immensely from one client to the next. So the type of client who likes very lavish holidays, entertains a lot, socializes a lot, obviously needs a much bigger pot of money than the client who what they want to do for holiday is to go camping in the UK. And that's what they love doing. So those two individuals are going to need a very, very different pot of money. I think your net worth needs to be planned so that it covers whatever you're going to need once you stop earning, because that's when you start drawing against it. I want to move on now and talk about women and money. If they're thinking about getting married, what are the top five things women need to think about from a financial point of view? I think a really, really important thing for anyone to do, you know, if they're getting married, they're about to move in with their partner, is to have a discussion around money. And it's something I think generally we're not very good at. There needs to be a discussion about, well, what are you going to do with your money? If there's two of you, are you going to put it into a joint account and then you each spend from that account? Are you going to keep your money separately and then the bills get split between you? If you're not having a joint account and you're thinking that you want to start splitting your joint bills, but then the rest of the money's for you to do whatever you want, you also need to think about how are you going to split those bills? Because you could, of course, split them down the middle. But if one partner, for example, earns twice as much as the other one, you also need to have a discussion between the two of you. Do you think it's fair that you each pay half? Or should the one who earns more be contributing more? And I think there's no right or wrong answer. It's going to vary from one couple to the next. But to have that discussion in advance so that you decide between the two of you what you two think is fair. And if one partner is coming in with very different assets to another, I think you should be having a discussion about whether there should be a prenup in place. Now, nobody gets married planning on getting divorced, but the fact is 42% of adults get divorced. We all need to be aware divorce happens. And it is sensible to discuss in advance, if things were to go wrong, how are you going to split the assets? Because in a long marriage, generally, doesn't matter who brought the money in, it's in the pot to be split between the two of you. But if one person has a much higher amount of assets pre-marriage, you might want to have the discussion that those assets are ring-fenced and they belong to that partner. So I'd say the really important thing is to have that discussion in advance and be very open with your partner because your partner might think it's fair to split bills down the middle because that's what they think is appropriate. You earn a lot less than your partner and you don't think it's fair. But it doesn't mean your partner's been mean. It just means that's what your partner is thinking. Maybe they haven't thought of a different option. So it's up to you, if you're not happy with that, to say, look, be aware I'm earning a lot less than you. So if we both pay the same, you're going to end up with so much more money than me. 
And it's getting it out into the open because this is the sort of thing that can eat away at you if you think it's unfair, if you think your partner is spending too much money, that causes a problem. If you think your partner's a bit tight with money and you keep getting told off because you spend a lot, things like this can really cause a long-term problem. So it's getting it out on the table right at the beginning, discussing how you feel about money, how you feel about spending, which of you is going to do the budgeting, which of you is going to start monitoring things, etc. Don't wait until there's this horrible argument going on before you deal with it. Just get it out there right at the beginning and discuss it. At what point do you bring up the money conversation for the first time? And then how do you keep that money conversation going? Certainly, it needs to be brought up before you move in together, Mm. because there could be the terrible situation that you're moving in with your partner. You know, let's say you just think you're going to split everything down the middle, but your partner thinks you earn a lot more than them, and they think it's fair that you pay more. You need to have that discussion right at the beginning. And in all honesty, if you can't have that sort of open discussion, which is hard, without a doubt, if you haven't discussed finances. But if you can't have that sort of conversation, I think you've got to start thinking really about your relationship generally, that there's something going on in your relationship that you can't each bring your points to the table to discuss it. So I think it needs to be brought up right at the beginning. It might be that you're not even sure what your partner earns because you just haven't Mm -hmm. discussed it. And again, just ask, you know, let's just discuss with one another. What do you earn? This is what I earn. This is what I spend. What do you spend? And it is something that should happen on a regular basis. Because again, I see the situation where one partner wants to save. They think saving is really important. The other partner likes spending. That causes a problem. You need to have decided between you how much money is going to be saved with the money that's left over, how are you determining who's spending it and who isn't? As I say, there isn't a right or wrong answer at all. It's down to each couple to determine what works for them. You know, there'll be some people Mm. say, oh, you must put money into a joint account. You're married. It belongs to the two of you. And there'll be other people who say, no, that just does not work for me. I'm quite happy to put money into an account that's going to pay for all the joint costs. But actually, I like having my own pot of money. Have that discussion and work out a way forward that suits you. Mm. At what point should you ask about any debt that the partner might have, which might be, say, a student loan? Or you might have a property, your partner might have a property, so you have an outstanding mortgage. I mean, that's really getting into the nitty gritty, isn't it? I think so. You should know if they've got a lot of debt. And, you know, student debt, most people as students come out with student debt. But also, I think the thing to think about is what, you know, credit card debt. Because if someone Mm. has built up a large credit card debt, I mean, there could be lots of reasons, but potentially, they're an overspender. Potentially, there is a habit there of spending more money than they've got coming in. And if you like saving money because that makes you feel comfortable, 
there is a total mismatch there right at the beginning. And, you know, that's not to say you can't get around it, but you both need to be aware of it and decide how you can deal with it. Because the person who likes saving is probably going to panic that the other person's building up credit card debt. They may also get resentful that the other partner's spending lots of money and they're intentionally not spending money because they're trying to save for the future. And then you get the spender is maybe thinking that the other person is just not enjoying life. They're saving too much. There is so much emotion around money and different opinions as to how to deal with money. That needs to be discussed right at the beginning. Are you and your partner a good match together? It's part of it, isn't it? Money is such a big element of our lives that if you really have very, very different ideas about how to look after money, that's an issue. And that issue is going to get worse, I would suggest, the longer you're together. And that's why it needs addressing. You need to both know it and address it very early on, because otherwise it's just going to cause problems at a later date. And anything that you're trying to deal with when you're both upset is much harder than dealing with it right at the beginning. Let's try to take the emotion out of this. This is the situation. How are we going to make it work for both of us? And how often should you talk about money if you're in a couple? I think well, I'm going to say regularly, which of course isn't an answer, but, you know, once a month, once a quarter, unless Mm -hmm. it is a decision between you to both keep your money separate. And you may have made a decision between you that this is how we're going to sort joint accounts, but otherwise we do what we want with our money. And if you've made that decision, fine. But I often see a situation Women whose husbands have looked after the finance throughout maybe a 20-year marriage, they've got no idea how much money is in the pot. They often think that maybe there's more money than has been disclosed. They don't know how much money they need on an ongoing basis for the lifestyle that they want. They left it for their partner to deal with for lots of reasons, and it was right at the time. But of course, what happens is if it all goes wrong, you're really in a terrible situation that you just don't know. And it's also, it's not just divorce. What if your partner had a stroke? What if your partner was ill and your partner's been the one looking after all the money, but you don't know where it is? You don't know how much there is or anything. So it is really sensible for the two of you to sit down maybe once a month, once a quarter. And if one partner is taking all the responsibility and you're happy that that works, you just need to sit down and understand between you. Okay, what are you doing? Explain to me why you're doing it. What money have we got? Has it gone up? Has it gone down? Why has that happened? And also just check that if you've left it to your partner, that you do believe your partner is confident about what they're doing, because actually, maybe your partner's doing it purely because you're not, and your partner's not really sure what they're doing either. So don't just assume that your partner knows because they've taken responsibility. Your partner might be desperate for you to say, shall I have a look at it as well and we try and work it out between us? 
Yeah, great advice. Great advice. And of course, you can get external support. And I think that's always so helpful if both of you are feeling a little bit unsure or you decide that you really want to take this money investing thing seriously, look for a professional, find someone who can help you. And I think that will also ease the conversation. It will become less awkward because you have a structured way to talk about things and it just becomes a matter of course and possibly takes the emotion out of it. Yeah. And the two of you just decide between you, okay, this is what we need. I thought you were doing it. Mm. You thought I was doing it. We now realize between us, we don't really have a proper plan. Let's go and talk to someone and sort it. Now, what do women need to think about if getting a divorce? What are the financial considerations? An important thing to note, and I've touched on this earlier, if you've been in a generally a long marriage, so, you know, shorter marriages, there are different rules, but a, a long marriage, it's deemed that any money in the pot belongs to the two of you. So whether you earned it, whether your partner earned it, whether the house is in your partner's name or not yours, it's irrelevant. It's in the pot deemed to belong to the two of you. So a question I often get is from a woman who's been a stay-at-home mother. So she gave up work after the children were born, or maybe she took a part-time role. She's earned less money than her partner. And she worries about, well, does that mean I'm going to get less money on settlement? And the answer is no, because the stay-at-home mother has been doing other jobs around the house. And in law, it's deemed that her input is as great as the partner who's earning. But of course, from the other point of view, be aware as well that actually if you're the partner who's been doing the earning, and maybe you've brought an awful lot more money in, you do not end up with more money as a result. It belongs to the two of you. Another myth that I frequently hear is women whose partner has, I don't know, let's say they've had an affair or for whatever reason, maybe it's the partner who turns around and says, you know, the marriage isn't working. I think we need to call it a day. Somehow they think that the partner is going to be punished financially as a result. And that is not the case. The law is not there to determine that one person behaved inappropriately, immorally, whatever you want to call it. So a lot of women have said to me, that's not fair because I've been happy in the marriage. I've been looking after the children. I'm happy living in this house, et cetera, et cetera. Why should I have to give the house up? Because my partner's determined they want to leave. But it doesn't matter who did what, who decided to leave. It's determined that this is the pot of money. How do we split it to be fair to both parties? And fairness does not include punishing anyone for deciding the marriage wasn't right for them. The biggest, biggest, biggest myth that all women need to be aware of, there is no such thing as a common law wife. So, so many women I speak to who are living with their partner, they're not married, maybe there's children. They believe that, you know, they've been living with their partner for 15 years. They are going to be looked after financially if the two of them separate. And that is not the case at mm -hmm. all. If you're not married, 
there is no legal requirement for your partner to financially assist you. So for women in long-term relationships, get some form of advice there as protection. And you don't want to get married if you don't want to get married. You know, you don't need to get married just for that, but you want to go and have some form of cohabitation agreement because I've seen a number of women who have assumed, and particularly when children are in the mix, that they have the same rights as if they were a wife. And that is not the case at all. Such an important point, Mary. What are some of the ways that women might lose out financially because of a divorce or do they and how can they protect themselves? One way women lose out in a certain sense is that if they stop work or they've taken a lower paid role because of childcare duties, they've worked part time, whatever it is, they possibly have less earning capacity going forward than had they not done that. So let's say they decided, I don't know, to use a nanny. If she hadn't cut down on her professional career, she'd be able to earn more going forward if they get divorced after, I don't know, 20 years or something. So she loses out in that sense. That's financial, isn't it? She's gained in lots of other ways because she's had her children and she's been at home with her children, etc. A number of women, and I find this quite surprising and I always try and change their minds, a number of women somehow feel it's not appropriate for them to have half of the pot because it's been their partner who's been going out to work and working very hard. And that always surprises me because I say, look, the reason your partner was able to do that was because you took on childcare duties, you took on looking after the house. I don't know, you did the washing and the shopping and the cleaning. You might have had cleaner, but you sorted it. And I said to them, your partner went to work, did not have these other things to think about, did not have to keep looking at the clock, thinking, oh, I've got to go and do a run to pick my child up from nursery now. And therefore, your partner was able to throw themselves fully into work, think about their career and move on like that. And I said, do you not think that you being at home has allowed them to do that? That You've helped put them in the position that they're earning what they're earning. But yeah, I have had women who think, well, that just doesn't sound fair to me because I've been at home and I've been looking after my children and I've had a great time and my partner's gone to work and has had a stressful job, etc. But I find that odd because you make a decision between the two of you. One of you is going to stay at home because you want your children looked after by a parent or whatever your decision may. You've made it for all the right reasons. But what happens is financially, one person ends up being able to get promoted and earn an awful lot more than the other. Mm. And I think it's therefore natural that you want to try and equalize that somehow. Definitely. And I think we said this, Mary, that you know there's an opportunity cost, isn't there, to women staying home. And therefore, if they decide to stay home for a very long time, definitely not maximizing all their professional certifications and experience. As we know, the market moves on. There's an enormous opportunity cost. So getting 50% is fair. 
And I suppose, and you think as well, you know, the woman who gets divorced, I don't know, at 40, 45, whatever it is, in all honesty, how attractive is she in the marketplace when she hasn't worked for 20 years? It doesn't matter how brilliant she was a long time ago and her qualifications. If she's been out of the marketplace for that period of time, she's actually just not very attractive to an employer. So at that stage, she may be desperate to go back and try and create her own income. But actually, it's hard because she doesn't have that experience anymore. And luckily, there are loads of programs now, loads of government supported programs that allow women who want to upskill or even just change careers. Maybe they're trained as a lawyer or an accountant and want to move into technology. And there are loads of programs now that allow you to do that. So that's really positive. But it must be a real shock to come out of being married, having looked after, say, three children, being home, and suddenly you need to think about work and earning an income. But for that reason, you should absolutely be entitled to your 50%. And I'm so glad, Mary, that these women have you to remind them of that. Whether or not you've loved every minute of it, you have given up your financial earning when you start looking after your children. And you've probably loved every single minute that you've done it, but financially you are disadvantaged compared to the situation you would be in had you not stopped work to look after your children. I want to ask quickly about pensions, private pensions, because... That's something that women forget to ask about and isn't often negotiated. So how do women protect themselves so that they do have access to that information around private pensions, etc.? On divorce, everything you own goes into the pot, and that includes pension. And of course, if you've been a stay-at-home mum, your pension probably isn't enormous if you stopped working a long time ago. If your partner's been working all this time, your partner is likely to have a much bigger pension than you. Now, your partner's pension also goes into the pot for discussion. What often happens, though, is depending on what age you get divorced, but if you're getting divorced sort of age 40 plus, the house and the pensions are likely to be the biggest asset. And sometimes what happens is the mother wants to stay in the house because dependent on the age of the children, she's worried that the children have got enough disruption going on as it is. She'd like them to stay in the house. They can then still go to the same school. They've got the same neighbours, etc. So often she might want to stay in the house. But if she stays in the house, it's very likely that her partner takes the pensions, because you're trying to even it out between them. So I do see a lot of reports sometimes which talk about the number of people who've gone through divorce and the pension wasn't discussed. I suspect that happens on occasions, but if you've gone through a solicitor, I don't believe that happens very often at all. But I suspect what's happened in these surveys where the women are saying, no, the pension wasn't discussed. I suspect what's happened is it's been negotiated that she keeps the house. It's been negotiated that he keeps the pension. But because 
she's been overwhelmed throughout the whole discussion as everybody would be because of the emotion. She comes away afterwards, many years later, thinking, well, I haven't got any pension, so it wasn't discussed. If you're going through a solicitor, pension should always, always, always be discussed and taken into the mix. But it might be that you don't end up with a pension share because it's been agreed between the two of you that actually Mm. there are other assets which are more used to you at the time. And again, if there's savings or ISAs, it might be deemed that there'll be a greater benefit to you because you can't get your pension until 55. So it might be, well, you have this pot of money because this is going to help you fund everything at the minute because you're not working. Right. There may be circumstances where sometimes selling the family home might make more sense and splitting it 50-50. And similarly, then having access to, say, 50% of your ex-partner's pension might make more sense. And I guess that's where A, you need a good solicitor. You also need a good financial advisor to help you think that through. You do, because I think it's very, very common for women to want to stay in the home. And that's because there is Mm. so much dreadful disruption going on. They're trying to have something in their life that's looking stable. But the fact is, if you've got a big house, firstly, you may not be able to maintain it properly because maybe you haven't got the income. But you've also got an asset sitting there which just is not generating any income for you so you could end up getting to let's say I don't know you get to 65 and you've got a house you've got no other savings so it's hard it's hard because there's a lot of emotion going on but sometimes without a doubt the best thing to do is sell the house whilst you're going through divorce because there's so much disruption going on let's try and get all the disruption sorted in one go And then I say to clients, view it as a positive. You're going to buy a new house, which is just yours. You're going to furnish it how you want. You're going to do everything with it how you want. This is your home. And this is the start of your new life ahead of you. And let's view it as a positive. And then, like you say, if you're splitting the house, chances are there's then another pot of money, maybe through pensions, savings, wherever it's coming from, that's going to come to you instead. And that money is then going to help you in later years, providing income for you. These are all really, really important considerations and and exactly why you need really good advice, Mary. And as you said, it's such an emotional time. So having people around you who can be constructive and help you think these things through is vital. But I think you want to be setting yourself up to have assets that are growing in value, compounding in value. And so when you get to the age of 65, you're retiring or older, you've got assets that continue to grow. Absolutely. And that's why it is useful to have someone to help you see that. Because as well, going through divorce, often you're focused on the moment. You can't think far enough ahead. And actually to have someone explain to you, if you do this and you keep the house, this is what things are going to look like in the future. And look, 
you run out of money. If you split the house now, you downsize, you get somewhere smaller and you take this share of pensions, investments, this is what happens. So it's to help women look at the other options that are available to them and help them decide which is right for them. It's all about information and knowing what your options are. Yeah, absolutely. So Mary, at what point do you think women should think about and decide to work with a financial advisor? And then how do you go about finding one? I think a lot of women are probably happy to do things on their own in the sense that they'll do some research and then they'll get on and do it. Maybe they'll even enjoy doing it. But if you're in the situation that you want to save and you don't know where to do it, you don't know how much to save, and as a result, you're not doing anything, you definitely need to take financial advice. If you're in the situation at all where you're looking to plan for the future and you just don't know what to do, you need to take advice because, again, I say to clients, if you're, let's say, 45, if you're 45 now and maybe you haven't been saving enough up to now, you've got enough time to do something about it. If you don't look at that until you're 60, there's less options available to you. So the earlier you look at anything, the better. And some people need a financial advisor for accountability as well to make sure that they do it because they might think, oh, yes, I'm going to save X. But actually, they don't get around to doing it or something else comes up and they go and have a nice holiday in the times of Mikan holiday. You know, there's lots of reasons why people want to do something but don't get around to doing it. Finding an advisor, you know, it's the typical ask people who they recommend. Now, that's tricky if your colleagues aren't using an advisor. There are some websites, there's one called Unbiased, there's another one called Vouched For, which advisors are on there and you can see their reviews. The thing to be aware of is those websites are really a marketing forum for advisors. So it's not a list of all advisors, it's a list of advisors who are paying to be on that site so that they'll get leads. Now, there's nothing to say they're not great, these people, but just to be aware, advisors are paying to be on that site because they're using it for marketing. But again, if someone's on that site and they've got very great reviews, well, then they're probably a good person to talk to. But I'd say just find some names, ideally because they've been recommended, or through a bit of a Google search, LinkedIn search. Have a look at the websites and then have a conversation with these advisors and just say, this is what I need to do. Can we have a discussion as to whether you might be the right advisor for me to work with? And what should you look for in a financial advisor? If you've never worked with one before, what are you asking them? What should they do for you? I think one thing to be aware of is firstly, think about how many questions does the advisor ask about you? Mm -hmm. So not about your money, not about how much money have you got, 
what are they asking about you? Because a good advisor and financial planner will want to know what you want to achieve. And they will find that out first before giving you a recommendation as to what to do with your money. So see what they're asking about you. And certainly check as well that you're the one doing most of the talking and not the advisor telling you how clever they are. And I'd say as well, if you're feeling a little bit unsure about money, actually ask a specific question, a real question that you don't know the answer to. Maybe even it's just, what's the difference between an ISA and a pension? Because firstly, you need to be able to ask that and know that the advisor is going to answer you respectfully. They're not going to patronize you because you don't know it. And you also need to know that they're going to explain it to you in language you understand. Because if they give you a whole load of jargon, well, I'd suggest they're the wrong advisor for you if you're not comfortable with finance. And maybe you just say to them, you know, I'm really not comfortable with finance. I'm a bit fearful. I don't know this and I don't know that. Just say, what can you do to help me? And actually say, remember, you and your advisor are interviewing one another. You need to know the advisor's right for you. The advisor needs to know you're a good mix for them. Maybe just say, tell me why you think we might be a good fit. Or tell me if you think we're not a good fit and why. But remember, even if you've got very, very little knowledge of money, you're buying their services. And they are interviewing you as well. But remember, it's not up to the advisor to say, yes, come and work with me. It's up to you as well to say, you're a good fit for me. I feel comfortable that I'm going to be able to work with you for quite a long time. I'm going to be able to tell you everything that's on my mind. And you're going to be able to give me confidence about my money. It's an interview. It's a two-way interview. And Don't just be swayed by an advisor saying, oh, yes, I can do that for you without you thinking, yes, this is the right person for me. Yeah, they're great questions, Mary. Now, a lot of people assume that you have to have a lot of money in order to work with a financial advisor or that paying for financial advice is expensive. Is that true? Sadly, It is. (laughs) Well, paying for financial advice is expensive, and that term will mean different things to different people. But if you have £2,000, for example, what my suggestion would be, do not ask for financial advice for that, because you're just going to pay too much money. I have certainly said to potential clients who call me, I cannot work with you because actually my fee is going to be disproportionate to the amount of money. That you've got. I mean, part of it is the FCA have so many compliance issues in place, quite rightly, that it's made giving financial advice pretty expensive. It just has. There's a whole load of regulatory issues in place. We all have to have professional indemnity insurance. We all pay financial services compensation scheme fees. We pay FCA fees. It is pretty expensive to be a financial advisor. And of course, those costs are getting passed on to your client. So it isn't cheap. But I think a few things to bear in mind, 
if you're not doing something to plan for your future and you need to, you need to think about the cost of not doing it. And yes, you're going to pay whatever fee to an advisor, but if your advisor can get you up and running with a plan and ensure you stick to that plan, that is a fee worth paying without a doubt. And there are some services around. I mean, I do offer it. I offer, for example, a half hour paid session. So I can't give advice, but I can have a client come to me to say, look, I want to do X. I'm reading on the web and I found this information. I don't understand what it means. So I couldn't give advice to say to the person, right, well, this is right for you. But I can explain the different scenarios and explain what they mean for that individual. So I'm giving information. I don't know how many advisors do that, but there are services around like that, which therefore means if you've got a smaller amount of money and you don't want to pay or it's just not appropriate for you to pay for full advice, you can still get expert information. So that instead of reading a whole load of things on the web and you've got no idea what they mean, you've got no idea what's relevant for you, you can get expert information. You do then have to go away and make your own decision because if someone's providing information, they can't give you advice. But hopefully you've been put in a position that you're then able to make that decision because you understand the impact of different options there. I think a key part of this is knowing when to absolutely seek advice. So, for example, if you are going through a divorce or thinking about getting a divorce, getting financial advice at that point is a really good idea. It's probably money well spent because the cost of not doing that is just too high. And actually, I had a client say to me initially when I first started working with her, she was going through divorce. She was a little bit nervous as to did she have enough money going forward? And she's an ongoing client. She did say to me at one stage, I'm worried whether I can afford to keep working with you. And I did say to her then, look, if at any stage you cannot afford my fee or, you know, it's not appropriate for you to keep paying my fee, I will tell you, because obviously I'm not going to mm. charge someone if I know I'm putting them into a terrible situation. And then about a year after that, she phoned up in a panic about something and we had a meeting and sorted it. And she came to the meeting in tears because she was worried about lots of stuff, financial and everything else. And it all got sorted. And she said to me afterwards, oh, I remember asking you, could I afford to pay you? She said, I now realize I can't afford not to pay you for a service. And that's it. I took away her panic and her concerns. And that's what she's yeah. paying for. She's obviously paying for me to manage her finances as well. But that's what she's getting. She knows that I am looking after her finance. If she can't afford me, I'm going to tell her because I'm obviously not going to keep charging her if she cannot afford long-term to pay that fee. So good advice is expensive, but bad advice or no advice when you really need it is even more expensive. Absolutely. <laughs> Isn't there some saying the most expensive 
advice you can get is free advice or something like that. Yeah, and it's true, isn't it? That's very, very true. Yeah. Now, I'm curious to know if you're seeing some patterns in terms of how women are allocating their money, what their preferences might be in terms of how they invest. If they're talking to you about ESG, for example, any kind of trends around the allocation of money that you've seen? Yeah, I have a lot of clients who like the idea of investing in property because we all understand property. I am nervous of someone who has all their money in property. The downside to property is that if you need a chunk of money at short notice, you can't get it out of your property. You know, you can't sell half your house because you only need half the money. If you've got that money in investments, well, yes, sell just enough investments for what you need. Investing in property is great, but it's not as flexible as it needs to be. And in the same, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I do not like to see anyone having all their money in property. My investments that I look at are, I'd say, straightforward vanilla type investments. I want my clients to have a diversified portfolio. So there's a mixture there of equities and debt, dependent on how much risk they're comfortable taking. I want the portfolio to be very diversified across a number of different industries. So if any particular industry is struggling, and of course, the whole travel entertainment industry has suffered very badly during COVID, you don't want that having a major impact on your portfolio. And the portfolio to be very diversified geographically. So that is my approach to investing. Let's get a very, very well diversified portfolio with very cost-effective funds in it. I do have an ESG option within that, but because my approach is firstly, let's get a very, very diversified portfolio, I do not provide advice where someone is very, very specific about it has to be ESG I want this and I want this, I want this. That would not be an approach that I would be able to help with. My investment approach is generally, look, we know the stock market works. Over time, the stock market has always gone up. Yes, there's a lot of falls along the way, but let's aim to get the good return that the stock market can give. So I don't, for example, want to be choosing in any means, aim to choose the funds that are going to outperform the stock market, because I can't do that at all. My approach is we can't control the stock market. The stock market is going to go up, down, sideways. We're not sure. Let's control all the things we can control, which is getting a diversified portfolio. So yeah, my approach to investing is a very I guess simple. I call it vanilla, not because it's boring. It's a very straightforward, this is what I believe about the stock market. And this is the way that I think we can get the stock market return with this portfolio. 
And the reason I asked the question about ESG is because based on all the research and, and also we're seeing such a huge inflow of money into ESG, we know that women invest based on their values. They align with their values a lot and sustainability, right? And ESG is top of their list. So I'm just curious to see whether women are bringing that up as a topic they want to talk about. And similarly, does crypto come up? I mean, Bitcoin, Ether, very risky. But yeah, curious if women are interested to discuss those topics. I've had some discussions on that. Again, that's not an area that I recommend. So I've got some papers that I give clients. It's explaining the risks around it. There are people who've made a whole load of money from this. I've also seen a lot of reports, people losing money and a lot of scams going on. So it's not an area I advise on, but I give clients the information I've got and really explain the risk around it. Most of my clients then decide they don't like that idea because my clients typically tend to be very risk averse and they're more concerned with keeping what they've got and getting a bit of growth on it rather than aiming for some massive return, which of course has the downside against it, risk and reward. If you're taking that much risk, things could go wrong as well. Yes, if things go right, you get a very nice return. But if things don't go right, there's a large loss. It really depends on your risk profile what you're trying to do. And you might decide the majority of your money obviously will be in this very diversified portfolio. And you may decide to allocate 1% of your net worth to alternative investments. And you put that into Bitcoin or invest in Ether or something else, but being very clear about how you allocate your assets and, and the majority should be in a very well diversified portfolio. And Mary, also interested to hear whether women are asking you about investing in startups. Again, just as a general conversation point, does that come up at all? Yeah, I've had some women do that. Again, I know it's you know such a general comment, but women are great at wanting to share, I think, and support, mm -hmm. particularly female-led startups. And I think it's wonderful, the whole women wanting to empower other women, support other women. So I have had some conversations about that. Again, I always want to explain to clients the risk involved. There is a risk there. And my view is always only allocate the amount of money that you would be willing to lose. Now, hopefully you won't lose it. But actually, I think you've got to view it as an altruistic decision rather than investment decision. So you're doing it because you want to support these other startups, but be aware you may not get your money back at all because the whole point about startups is they're at a very early stage. Some of them are going to do marvelously, but some of them won't. So that's why I say it needs to be an altruistic decision as to I'd like to support them rather than mm -hmm. I'm doing this because I think I'm going to make a nice return from it. It's so important to be clear on what you're investing in and why. And on that basis, decide, again, how much you allocate of your money. But it's also worth mentioning that there are tax incentives 
So when you invest in a startup, there's SEIS, there's EIS, right? So there are tax incentives and there's a way of protecting that investment as well. So if it's something that women are interested in, it's probably worth looking into. But yes, you wouldn't invest 100% of your net worth into one startup. That is risky and no one is recommending that. But there are ways to invest which minimizes the risk, allows the exposure to potentially generating asymmetrical returns. Now, just to wrap up, Mary, thank you so much for all of this wonderful advice. What would you say to women who have not had to think about money or long-term investing, but now have to? I think the first thing is, and it's easier said than done, stop being fearful of it. You need to find someone who can help you. Now, whether that's a colleague or a member of your family, or it's an advisor, or it's doing research on good old Google, go into it knowing that if it's explained to you sensibly, you will be able to understand it. I think too often there's a whole panic about, oh, I won't be able to do it. And as soon as you go into anything with that attitude, your brain is going to close down and stop you learning. So find people who can help you and support you with this. And it's interesting as well that maybe you'll ask a number of your colleagues at work and find that they're in exactly the same boat as you, that they don't know what to do either. And again, there is nothing better at boosting your confidence than realising you're not the only one in that position. Mm. So maybe, you know, if you speak to your colleagues, girlfriends, family, whoever it is, and find that others are saying, well, I don't really know either. Well, start pooling your resources. Maybe one of you goes away and looks up what an ISA is, how it works. One of you goes away and looks up something else. And then you come back and pool all your information between you. But just know that finance can be understood. It just needs to be explained to you properly. And if you're talking to anyone who is just talking in a whole load of jargon, they're the ones that are at fault, not you. It's not your fault if you don't understand because nobody understands other people's industry vocabulary. So well said, Mary. And I think also, and you know, speaking from my own experience, Find something that you're drawn to or you're curious about. So personally for me, I'm very interested in Bitcoin and Ether. I also spend a lot of time reading up on ETFs, ESG ETFs. So find something that for whatever reason you're curious about and start reading about it and connect with people who share that interest or passion and get involved. Even if it's starting small, so you can invest £10, you can invest £20 via an online investment platform, what have you, but you will engage that way. It will become real and you'll start to learn more. So learning by doing and, and then surround yourself with people who think and do this stuff all the time. And before you know it, you'll be very knowledgeable. It's a really good recommendation to just go in and try it with a small amount of money and yeah, learn. But just be aware to not go in with a chunk of money when you're not sure yeah. what you're doing. Go in and learn and almost play. Yeah. And just see what happens as a result. It becomes very real then. Yeah. 
It's active learning, which I think is how we learn best. Mary, I want to say thank you again. This has been wonderful. I'm absolutely chuffed that I've got to meet you, speak to you. And I want to thank you for all the wonderful work you're doing. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, how can they do that? Well, LinkedIn, Facebook, Google, Mary Waring, and Waring is W-A-R-I-N-G. And my company is Wealth for Women. And four is F-O-R. So Wealth for Women. You'll be able to find me all over the place there. Wonderful. Thank you, Mary. Thanks so much, Yana. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.